0: Good morning, my name is Greg, and I'm reading the second reading, which is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at 1 verse 1 to 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. And Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart. And a good conscience and a sincere faith some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk they want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they have so confidently affirm we know that the law is good if one uses it properly we also know that law is made not for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels The ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers for adulterers and perverts for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed god which he entrusted to me i thank christ jesus our lord who has given me strength Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. We give thanks for this, the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Greg, for reading. If you've got one of the bulletins on the inside you'll find the outline of the talk that will hopefully help you. If I get lost, or if you get lost, you can if I get lost, you can let me know. <laughs> but hopefully that will help. A space for you to write notes. But let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I was reading up on the history of our church. And in this centenary booklet, this one here, it was written for 1987. So that was when it was 100 years old. Anyone around in 1987 in this church? A few of us? Yeah, a few of us. Some of us were not even born at that time. But I was reading this, and it's very interesting. It was black and white at that time, no color photos. The ministers, they dressed differently, um, far more formal. Um, And there's also a photo of one of our elders who's still with us in this. So you can come and have a look at his younger face in here if you like. But it was interesting reading this, because reading on what one of my predecessors said, At that time, the late David Innes, he said this. He said, The celebration of this centenary surely presents us, the people of St. Stephen's today, with a great challenge. The gospel torch has been passed into our hands now, and the Lord is calling us to see that it burns brightly in our day and generation, and that it is passed on faithfully to those who follow us. It was quite heartening to read. So that was about 34 years ago. Because it reminds us of what we are on about. It reminds us of why we are here. Why this church exists. Why are you here in this church? And hopefully it's not because of the scenery, the the old church building just feeling nice. Hopefully it's not because... You're bored at home and this is better than being bored at home. Hopefully it's not because of entertainment. You find this quite entertaining. Hopefully it's none of those reasons. But hopefully at the very center of your reason for being here is that gospel, the torch of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the good news of what God has in Jesus Christ done for our salvation. You see, the church at its very center, at our very core it's not about us at all. It is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And unless we have that so explicitly clear and at the very center of who we are, then we're on the path to destruction. I mean, that's what Jesus said in that first reading. You see, the the road, the path to destruction is wide, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And so, in one sense, that was the concern of my predecessor, David Innes, many years ago. But it's also the concern of the Apostle Paul for the churches in Ephesus, what we'll be considering. In fact, it's the concern for all churches in every single generation. And so, as we embark on this personal letter to Timothy... It was written by Paul to his young protégé, this young minister, whom he has discipled for about 14 years. So Timothy, he took under his wings, trained him, discipled him. They lived together. He taught them. They went on missionary journeys together. And Paul treated him like his very own son in the faith. And Timothy, by this time, we saw in that little quiz, he was about 30 years old, so a young pastor, In fact, many pastors who finish Bible college today, they're about 30 years old. But though this was a personal letter written to Timothy, it was written for the churches. To Timothy, but for the churches, and for us today as well. And that same concern, that very same concern. How do we make sure, how do we make sure that as a church, Everyone here, sitting here this morning, the children, the teenagers, how do we make sure that we're on the straight and narrow? How do you make sure of that? How do we make sure that we are all walking the right path? How do we make sure that what we see here each week amongst us is the evidence of the transforming power of God? We don't want to see just mere sentiments or facade, We want to see real, genuine, authentic gospel transformation. How do we make sure we're all headed to heaven? That's the question. Because unless we are that type of church that Paul wants, we are wasting our time. And so how do we make sure? Well, in this passage, it's in fact quite simple. Not saying it's easy to do. It's simple in instructions. Because the first instruction is to Timothy, stop any and every false teaching. Anything that adds to, subtracts to, dilutes the gospel of Jesus Christ and his exclusive claim, stop it, get rid of it. That's the first instruction. The second one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim that, declare that, and live it out. That is the way to the straight and narrow. And so firstly, we'll look at this passage now. It is to recognize the futility the emptiness, the danger of false teaching and to stop it. Now there is bound to be false teaching in every generation. Every generation will have to deal with something new, something different, but it is false and it is wrong. And I'm not just talking about the stuff outside the church. I mean, it goes without saying, isn't it? There are so many false teachings outside the church. The popular, public, major opinion, the opinion, the teachings of of social media, of culture, of society, which is ever-changing, it does not make it right in the eyes of God, especially when it comes to how our world views humanity, the dignity and sanctity of human life, how our world views divinity, that there is indeed a God, how our world views morality, There is, in fact, a right and wrong, and an evil and good, and you can call evil, evil, and how our world views eternity. There is a heaven and hell. But I'm not talking about the stuff outside the church. Paul here focuses on the stuff within the church. And so the Apostle Paul, he's left his young protege, Timothy, in Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, "...the clarity of the gospel..." the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ are being muddied by these false teachers. Stop them. And so we see verses 3 and 4. If you have a look, if your Bible's open, verses 3 and 4. Instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And so what was their problem? Well, we're not specifically told what they were, these myths and genealogies. But it, were, it appeared that what was filling up the Sunday gathering, the meeting of God's people, the pulpit, the sermons, the home groups, the Bible studies, what was filling that time up were Jewish legend instead of the gospel. Now back then there was this Jewish works, this Jewish religious work. It's called the Book of Jubilees. And perhaps Paul was alluding to this. In that Jewish book of legends and myths, they, it embellishes parts of the Old Testament and especially parts of Genesis and made them into elaborate, fanciful stories such as angels would take and keep the Sabbath in heaven or animals used to speak in Hebrew before the four, but after the four they stopped or all the names of the children of Adam and Eve and how they intermarried, and there are a whole stack of other genealogies in this book. And so it appeared that Paul was alluding to that, and they were using that to fill up what the church was learning. And why was it a problem? Well, we're told, verse 4, These promote empty speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And so what was happening in this church was that they were taking the church to the wide open road to destruction, teaching them all this nonsense instead of staying on the straight and narrow which is by faith. I mean, imagine that's what we did in this church. If every Sunday what was taught up here were just the opinions of men and women, conspiracy theories, ideas and fanciful stories, And what filled out our youth group time and kids' church and Christ were just all made-up stories. Why would you come? You'd rather stay home, read The Age and read Women's Weekly. But hopefully you see that's not the case in our church. But if we are to reflect on our church for just a bit. In fact, reading the history of our church... It wasn't too long ago, you might find this surprising, so at the 125th anniversary booklet, reading this this past week, there was a time when there were even Freemasons amongst the eldership. I don't know if you're aware of Freemasonry and what that meant. I won't go into details apart to say that it is incompatible with Christianity. In fact, there's, there's a man in our congregation who shared with me how he used to be a Freemason and moved up the ranks but saw that it was incompatible with Christianity and so he resigned his membership. But not going to too much detail there, what it meant was that even within the leadership of this church a generation ago, there were divided allegiance and divided loyalties. Is my allegiance first to Jesus Christ as Lord and King? or is my allegiance to some secretive men's club and some belief in a vague, creative, supreme being. In fact, in Freemasonry, they've got embellished stories of Solomon's temple there as well. False teachings come in different forms. And so Paul says to Timothy, now remember, though it was written to Timothy, it was read out to the church. Paul says to him, Get these characters to stop teaching their nonsense. It is futile, it is empty, and it is dangerous. And so you can just imagine, as the letter was being read out through the churches, the different churches as it was passed around, you'll have some in the church thinking, I think Paul's talking about us. And then you read on in verse 6, have a look. Some have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And then those in the church will be thinking, well, that's probably talking about us again. And then verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. And so they're thinking, Paul is probably talking about us again. And then in verse 20, which we'll get to next week, Hymenaeus and Alexander, now Paul's named out some of us. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, get these guys to cut it to stop teaching they have no clue whatsoever they are teaching nonsense i wonder if you know anyone like that they talk as though they know everything but they have absolutely no clue you know that guy he he uses all those big words he sounds so deep and theological he must be so bright and he must be so but i don't think he has a clue what he's talking about know anyone like that They present themselves so spiritual, so religious, so law-abiding. In fact, they've got more laws than the laws of God. But the question has to be raised. How do we know, how do you know, what we're teaching here is the truth? How can you make that judgment? Well, Paul says, look at the fruits. If it leads to speculation, division in the church fruitless discussion, ungodly behavior, well, the proof is in the pudding. Instead, if it leads to a life that is changed, a life that becomes loving because of Jesus Christ, a life that shows and reflects the sacrificial, self-giving love of Christ, a life that is God-honoring, well, that is a transformation that can only be brought about by Jesus Christ and so that's what we see in verse 5 now the goal of our instruction is love that has to be the focus that comes from a pure heart that is your heart has been changed by God a good conscience that is you can tell the difference between good and evil and you can call evil evil and good good you see the problem with our world is that we have no clue we call evil good and good evil that is our world But a good conscience, he can tell the difference. And a sincere faith. A faith that is real, genuine, grounded in Jesus. But the false teachers, they were not encouraging love. Their teachings wasn't helping people to love each other more. It was causing division and speculation. They misused the law to teach all their fanciful stories. And so what does Paul do? He corrects them. You don't use the law that way. You don't stuff up with the law. You don't make stuff up. The point of the law is to point out your sins. The point of the law is to point you to Jesus and to the gospel, which you desperately need to deal with your sins. And that's what Paul explains in verse 9. He says, We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. That is, that there are no righteous people but for the lawless and rebellious and for the ungodly and sinful and for the unholy and irreverent. You see, what the law of God does? The law of God is like holding up a mirror. Now, I'm not sure when the last time you looked into the mirror, but I avoid looking too long and too closely because the longer I look and the more closely I look, the less impressed I become. But holding up the law of God is a bit like that. You look long, you look closely, you see all the blemishes, all the faults and the flaws, the pimples, the facial hair, which I don't have too much of, so it's not much of a problem for me. But morally speaking, you hold up the law, and morally speaking, you see, I'm not a good person. I've broken the commands of God. I've transgressed His laws. I'm a liar. I'm selfish. I'm greedy, I'm proud. That is what the law of God does. And that's why Martin Luther, the reformer, he said, the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. I mean, don't you love that? You think you're such a holy person. You think you're such a good person. Well, the laws of God will smash that out of you. And again, that's the problem with our world. It's why our world hates the Ten Commandments. Because it exposes their sin and how they have fallen from glory. But the laws of God taught rightly is meant to drive us to the gospel. And that's in verse 11. It is this gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which has been entrusted to me. And so the instructions to Timothy in this letter as we begin. Very simple. False teaching, stop it. False teachers, get rid of them. Gospel proclamation, go for it. Go for your life. And now Paul, what he does in the second part of this passage, he shows why the gospel must be at the heart of the church, must be at the very center. Because look at what the gospel has done for me. Look at what the gospel has, how it's transformed my life. Now, over the last couple of weeks, and even today, we heard from Chris and Anne. We've heard stories of the fruits of the gospel, how God has changed a life and brought someone out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, how God has worked to bring about faith and understanding. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was a rebel, alienated, but now I've become a child of God. That's a testimony. They are the fruits of the gospel. And here, Paul gives us his story. What was Paul like? Now imagine putting what Paul put down on your CV. Imagine putting that down. i like to see this in our next ministry appointment, a CV a bit like this. Verse 13. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. You see, Paul thought he was doing God a favor. I'll get rid of these Christians for you, God. They're teaching about this Jesus. It should stop, and I'll put an end to that. Now, what do you think God could have done at that point? When, the, when Paul at that point, or Saul at that point, was giving approval to the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. While he's in the way of the gospel advancing, God could have thought, I'll get rid of this Paul. I'll just get rid of him. But what did God do? I won't get rid of him. He's in the way of the gospel, but I'm going to let him experience the gospel. He's going to be confronted by the risen Lord. And on the road to Damascus, that was exactly what happened. Paul was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus in the brightness of his glory. So, so, why are you persecuting me? And Paul responded, who are you, Lord? It is Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And so do you see what happened to Paul as he shared off his story? God could have got rid of him. Very easy, piece of cake. But God made use of him. And we see in verses 13 and 14. But I I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, you can sense how excited he was in retelling the story of what God did to him. I could have been struck down by God. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners, he says. God could have got rid of me, but I received mercy. Why? Well, that's the gospel. That's the gospel, verse 15. And he summarizes it. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That is it. That is the reason. That is the gospel. It is not about us and what we do. And so our church primarily is not about us and not what we do. But it is about Jesus and what he's done. And in verse 16, this Jesus has demonstrated his extraordinary patience as an example of those who will believe in him for eternal life. Now note there the extraordinary patience. Why are we not dead? Why is it then when you, that you look around the world and you see people calling evil good and good evil, living such depraved lives, doing what ought not to be done, blaspheming the God of the universe. Why are we not dead? Because of his extraordinary patience. Now do you see here what really excites Paul? Do you see how Paul was able to maintain such spiritual vitality, such vibrancy of faith, such courage of conviction such joy and hope and love and peace why it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed god you don't move on from the gospel to anything else we need to remember that you don't graduate from the gospel now i'm not sure if you've heard people say i've heard the gospel before i know it all i know the story jesus died yes i know it but do you because if you do How can you ever get sick of it? And I wonder whether this might be your experience or whether you've experienced this or whether it might even be now. You just don't feel as zealous or passionate about the things of God like what you were used to. You've grown a bit cold in your faith. I wonder if that's true for any of you. I remember years ago, I was in youth groups, so I was only a teenager. And there was a season in life where all the youth, only a small group, we were very excited about the Word of God, about Jesus, about growing as a Christian, about learning. And I remember one one of our friends, this girl, she was also excited, but she asked her parents who stopped going to church. They claimed to be Christians, but stopped going to church. She asked her parents, why aren't you excited about the things of God? And do you know what the parents said? well, I used to be like you, but you'll grow out of it. But Paul didn't. And we mustn't. Why? Because Paul remembered what a wretched sinner he was. Look at what I was. A blasphemer, but I received mercy. Christ died for me. You remember that you cannot grow cold in your Christian walk. And perhaps as an aside, if this is you now in your life, you just feel a bit cold when it comes to your Christian faith. You feel a bit indifferent when it comes to Jesus Christ. You're close to apathy when it comes to church, to praying, to reading the Bible. What do you do? Just walk down the memory lane of your sins, your rebellion, Your filth. I was such a liar. I've committed sexual immorality. I've been unfaithful. I've blasphemed the name of God. I live so selfishly. I live for myself. I was so greedy. I damaged so many relationships. I destroyed my marriage. I was such a sinner. But recall... Jesus bled and washed all that away. You preach to yourself the gospel once again. And when you do, you cannot grow cold. What else is there left to do if that happens? Well, you burst out in praise to God. Verse 17, what the Apostle Paul did. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, any teaching that changes that gospel and the glory of the blessed God, stop it. And so the question for us this morning is, how do you think we as a church are going? The lessons here, We're not just for the churches back then, but for us today. Do you think we're still on the straight and narrow? Do you think, like what David Innes said, the flames of the the gospel, is that still burning brightly, that torch? Is it still brightly seen in us? Or has it been extinguished? At our staff meeting this week with the ministry team, we reflected on this question. What should we be concerned about in our church? We reflected, and honestly, we reflected for quite a while. We found it quite hard to identify whether there is false teaching that is taking shape in our church and taking away from the gospel. Now, if that is true, it might just be that we're not conscious enough, we're not looking hard enough, but if that is true, then we can praise God for his kindness and for his protection. But the, but the warnings remain true because it does happen, doesn't it? In churches, you see it all the time. A minor theological point that has been turned into something bigger than life, leading to division in the church, ungodly contention in the church, or a tradition. We've always done it this way. But when you go to change a tradition, which has somewhat become the unspoken law of the church, it brings strife. Or the Sunday gatherings. It's too contemporary, it's too traditional. But there's no bearing with each other in love. And there's a failure and wisdom to see that so much of that disagreement is not about truth, but just about personal preferences. Or those wanting to teach, who shouldn't be teaching at all. They critique, they criticize, they tear down, but all they reveal is their own self-righteousness. Leaders appointed to lead, but demonstrate no life that is transformed by the gospel. I mean, those things can and do happen, don't they? And so the warnings of this passage remain true for us. And so that question again, how do you think our church is going? You see, it only takes four generations for the gospel to move from being affirmed to something that people become antagonized against. Churches like that we see all the time. Nice, big, bluestone buildings. But inside, it is lifeless and there is no gospel transformation. You see, if the gospel is not clearly affirmed always, it quickly becomes something that is assumed. It's very common among those who grow up in Christian households or been going to church for a while. My parents are Christians, so I assume I'm a Christian. But if the gospel is assumed, it'll quickly lead to apathy. That's when church going and church attendance and growth groups and prayers completely drop. Look, Christianity is only one of the many religions, one of the many paths. In fact, I was quite saddened to meet a guy this past week. Grew up in a Christian household, but so apathetic to the things of God, to his faith, if it's there at all, towards the risen Lord. I just don't really care, he said. But apathy... Quickly leads to antagonism let's tolerate all the faiths all the world religions but if you are a Christian posting Bible passages on your social media we are going to get you and dehumanise you and we'll make sure you lose your job moving from affirmed to assumed to apathy and to antagonism in fact You don't have to wait all that long for the gospel to be lost. It only takes half a generation because once it is assumed, it is lost already. Only takes half a generation. And so, brothers and sisters, what is the path that we have laid for us and for the next generation? Is it straight and narrow? what will we write in our yearbook when we get to 140 years in a few years' time? Is the torch of the gospel shining brighter than ever? Or has it been extinguished? And when the children here, and the children in our kids' church, and the teenagers in our youth group, when they look at us, will they just assume the gospel, or will they affirm it, and approve it and uphold it because they see so clearly amongst you, the adults of this church, dads and mums, and teachers and youth leaders and elders, they see a vitality of faith, a vibrancy of your spiritual life, a faith and a hope. And they say, I cannot just assume this. I must own it as my own. I take hold of Jesus as my own so that now and in every generation to come, what do we end with? We end with praise. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we do pray, Lord, that you let us as a church Live out a life that is pleasing to you, where the gospel torch is always shining brightly, never to be extinguished, never to be assumed. And help us, Lord, to not lose our zeal for Christ, but to love him, honour him, and proclaim him. And we pray this in in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.